Welcome to the Jay LaRock Show. I am your host, Jay LaRock. This podcast is powered by ObsoleteGamer.com and the Mascot Studios Podcast Network. We continue our film and entertainment series with filmmaker and documentarian Rob McCullum. A fan of classic video games as well as cartoons, Rob has created many great films including the documentary Nintendo Quest, The Power of Grayskull, video game box art, and action figure adventure. We sat down with Rob to discuss the peaks and valleys of filmmaking, from the debate over going to film school, to how to market and profile your work once it's done. But we began with the spark, that moment when going into film was something that you knew you were destined to do. I've always loved movies always loved movies i was the kid that could watch a movie on repeat over and over and over again rewind it play hit rewind play uh that always fascinated me because i've always been in love with stories and storytelling uh whether it's in movies or songs or video games uh or books comic books uh even just playing with action figures and and carrying out the storyline that that comes as you're creating on the spot it's all about that impact and that experience you have and that, that rush. I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's that kind of avatar like projection where you, you picture yourself as the main hero or the characters and you get to be part of the events, you, whether you're a passive viewer or again, if you're playing with action figures or a video game and you're, you feel like you're carrying it all out. That's it's that rush, that sense of being a part of something that's fun. Maybe it's cause it's a little structured. I, I don't know. Versus, the, the unpredictable everyday life as we were talking before we started. Um, yeah, it's, it's just that rush. And when I started making films in high school, it was the process that really drew me to the craft. Like, oh, this is fun. Putting this together and figuring it out, not having any kind of formal training whatsoever. Uh, and then the, the exhibition actually showing the work. So it's, it's probably maybe equal parts, all three, the, the love of storytelling, the, the process of crafting a story and then being able to share it with the world. I can imagine um, in high school, it must have been difficult too, because on one hand, you can find friends who maybe are interested in it or at least interested in helping you. But at the same time, high school is a time where it's like people are getting to know themselves. You know, it could be like Lord of the Flies at some high schools. What was it like putting together those first films and getting people together to work together to to put something together like that it was pretty easy i mean i didn't have a lot of people around me i still don't when i make films it's very small groups of us that do it even nowadays um i only made i think three or four different movies while in well in high school and they were all in french i think mm-hmm. i made one in english uh growing up in canada you have to take french to a certain extent um i love the study of languages I took French and I took Spanish and uh, instead of, you know, reading a story in front of my French class, I asked if I could make a movie and the teacher of course knew that that'd be a lot more work than just writing a story and reading it. So she said, go ahead. Sure. And so that was like my first taste of filmmaking and they were all parodies of evil dead. Uh, <laughs> if you can imagine that, which, which is super fun, right? Cause you know uh, that, that whole series got a little bit campier as it went on so we played that up of course and had ridiculous blood splatters that was like orange juice and like kool-aid dye and i it was for me high school was never about who i am or even like am i gonna fit in it just that just wasn't part of my lexicon i know where you're coming from with that question it just was never 
one of those questions for me. Like I know, I kind of knew who I was or what I liked to do. And my friends and I hung out every week and my best friends are the same friends I had when I was in elementary school. And it was like the same thing, like Groundhog Day, every Friday night, every Saturday night, we'd be at the same place. We'd be, you know, jamming guitars and drums and bass until like one in the morning and, you know, playing some video games here and there. And some of the, you know, components would change out depending on what was going on in the world at the different times of year. We'd be listening to different music depending on what was going on, but same kind of thing over and over again. Um, so when I asked for help, whether it was a close friend or somebody that's in the same class, since these were high school assignments, uh, it was really easy to figure out. I mean, the biggest thing I've learned is when I say I'm going to do something, first of all, I'm stubborn enough to commit to it, no matter how folly the thing may be. But when you put that out there, people are attracted to that and they want to help be a part of something. I think people, like you said, in high school are trying to always define themselves and if they can do something to help define them, then, then that makes them feel better. When I say I need help, people come to help me because I think they like being a part of that experience. And that's pretty great because I love working with people and anybody that ever helps me, I never forget about you're kind of, once you're in the family, you're always in the family. And that's always been my attitude. I think it's interesting also because sometimes it can be difficult for someone to see the benefits of just being part of a group, especially nowadays. I can, I've seen it myself that um, in the past, people seem to be more willing to join a group, especially if they had someone who they felt had that drive, because sometimes people need that motivation. Maybe they're hesitant or they feel they're not good enough. But if someone is there like, come on, guys, let's do it. They're able to join in where then there seemed to be a, a, a turn where people were like, hey, you know what? Why should I help you? when I can become the star. And unfortunately that can end up breaking things apart. Have you found that since you were able to have such good friend, close friends that you didn't have to deal with that, that you were able to keep a unit together? Yeah, I mean, over the years, the people I've made movies with have changed some uh, because of personalities and some ego stuff like you, you've mentioned, uh, but very, very few and far between. It, it's if somebody doesn't come on to the next film overwhelmingly, it's a resource issue and the resource isn't money. It's usually time. Uh, they don't have the time because they're doing another cool project too. And how can I deny them that or make them feel guilty about that because they're following their dreams, you know, maybe we'll sink back and loop up on the next one, or maybe they help out in a different capacity, like a, like a lesser capacity. Maybe they just watch early cuts of the film or chime in on script or the outline instead of like being a part of the production shoots. So, it's, it's almost for, for us, like, it's not who's going to be involved and why or, or how it's more the how, how, how is everybody going to be involved? So I've, one of my collaborators, Jordan Morris, who's I think worked on almost all of my film projects with me in some capacity uh, is always a part of it. Not because he feels obligated, but because he likes to be creative and I like to be creative and we like each other and we have similar sensibilities. So if he's busy with another project, I can still pitch him ideas. He can still look at rough cuts and I can share stuff with him. And the best part about Jordan is like, he'll be brutally honest about stuff. So it's not just like showing your mom and dad, your, the movie you just made it boy, way to go, son. Um, it's like, is this, does this hold water? Does this make sense? Here's the parts where I didn't feel it worked. What did you think Jordan? So I think it's important to have a community and I think community is more important now than ever, whether it's about part of the stuff that, you're working on together or just the, the part of the community you want to be in. Um, 
I can see why now a community would have voices that say, well, how come I should help you and you're not going to help me? But I think that's also the purpose of the community. So we don't have to worry about not being helped. If we're in this together as a group, then we're in this together as a group. You know, we will figure it out. We'll take care of your needs and we'll take care of my needs. That's just how, that's just how you do it. And it's always been the same way about filmmaking. So somebody comes on board as whatever role we do what we have to do to make them feel good and give them the, the tools they need to do their job well, because that's important. And what are your thoughts as far as the, there's always been like a little talk about the difference between going to film school and learning on your own. And I've seen, of course, both sides do excellent, but people love to debate it, especially people who went to school. Cause I guess sometimes they have to justify that move. I went to school myself more because I wanted to get the contacts and I was more a writer than a filmmaker. So I wanted to learn the film part of it with people who are really into it. What are your thoughts overall on the difference between the two? Well, to clarify for everybody listening, I have an undergraduate degree. I graduated with my honors BA in film studies. And it's crazy that we're talking today because today is the day that Christopher Plummer had passed away, a well-known Canadian actor and Oscar yeah. winner. And he handed me my degree on stage because he was getting an honorary doctorate oh, wow. uh, at the ceremony. So that's really strange that you're bringing up education. Um, so that was all film theory, like why choices are made by directors and, and what those choices symbolize and what they can add up to basically uh, adding layers of meaning to a film and, and context. And then I have two postgraduate degrees, uh, one in directing and writing and one in producing and design. And so clearly I have a lot of education, so there must be some value. Please tell me there's some value to education and it's not just fun throwing money away. Uh, I think it's a lot of what you've said already. I think the contacts are so important. I think when you, especially in like my postgraduate class, because once you're done school there, you're, you're in the real world after. So you've got, in my case, 30 to 40 people that you got to work with uh, for eight months that are now in the industry at the same level. So when one person gets an opportunity, hey, I remember Rob, that was pretty fun when we did that stuff. Let's Let's see if he wants to do this. Or I remember you know, Jamie, she was awesome. Let's, let's see if she wants to do this. So you can kind of build those contacts and, and grow through the industry together. But like I said, I got my film degree in theory first. So that wasn't even really filmmaking. It was like understanding film, the why. And then I did production after, which was the how. Uh, and I, and I certainly encourage people to, to learn both of those things. I, I don't think you're going to be any better than people that don't go to school. I think you're, you may fast track a little bit more because I think school does more than tell you how to make movies. I think it helps you communicate ideas. Mm. I think it helps you deal with personalities because you're constantly thrown into a situation with group work uh, and getting used to the needs of different people uh, and, and how to get around those obstacles. It's a safe environment to learn where failing is like a hundred percent necessary. You need to fail. I pity the people that go to film school and, and come out with like straight A's because it's like, <laughs> what did you learn? If you're doing everything perfect, maybe the education was useless for you, you know, but the person who get, who's getting D's and C's and F's because they're making tons of mistakes. Those are the people that are never going to make those mistakes again, probably if they stick in the industry because they've learned now, they know how to do it differently. And also there's people who have gotten A's because 
they finished their project and they did the best they can, but there were still failures. Like I, I had some people who, you know, they were doing film stuff since grade school as well. And then there were some who just started college and said, Hey, I want to try this. And they went to school. They may have done the tests and things right, but their films, they would still admit, wow, there were so many mistakes on those films. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember making films, shorts, um, every different genre you can imagine narrative experimental documentary thinking how awesome they were and of course you look back and it's like maybe not as awesome as i remember but that's that's the nature of everything right you learn you grow your taste evolves um i still remember decisions that i made thinking oh that was a really great decision and now thinking back it's like why did why did i think that was really great so i think it's important to have perspective on any of that stuff now when it comes to film school I don't think it's as important as where you go as some people will tell you, Uh, you know, USC and, you know, New York film school, Vancouver film school. Sure. These are big name schools that charge a lot of money to go there. I don't know that you're going to get a better filmmaking education there than you are. If you go to like, I don't know, university of Chicago or um, well, I mean, Austin is really good, but pick anywhere. You know, I went to a school that was well known for animation. Uh, You know, they would feed Disney and DreamWorks and Fox, uh, tons of animators. So storytelling was part of it. And uh, a lot of Canadian television uh, people would take the television course as well. And the courses I took there were post-grad and it was geared towards like a little bit more auteur filmmaking, a little bit more feature film stuff, uh, but mainly hired gun type stuff. A lot of great knowledge I got, all the different, you know, professors and stuff had a lot of industry experience, different accolades, but I think you're going to kind of get that anywhere because schools know they need those in place to attract the students in order to go. So I don't think people should beat themselves up if they've got to go to like a community college versus like a four-star film school. Uh, Look at what you're going to try to get out of it, right? What What opportunities are going to be there? What resources are going to be there? Like I got to shoot 35 mil and it didn't cost mm. me anything except for development costs. Yeah. Cool. Now I'll probably never shoot 35 mil again, but it was cool to go through that experience. Yeah. And I think that one of the great things about uh, film school and, and I went to just university of Miami it wasn't anything huge or anything. Um, but what was great is if either you don't have other people like friends or people that can do film with you or you know, some people are a little bit shy or or hesitant. I've even noticed that I'm in my late 30s. So I kind of remember the difference between when you would just walk to a park and say, hey, do you want to play? And everyone would come play. And now you go to a park and everyone wants to sit there. They're a little bit more nervous. I think that going to school can almost help you because the teacher will be like, all right, you four go do this. You four do that. Um, and then also you could just learn, you may like something better. Like for me, I, I'm a pure writer, but I found out that working with um, audio and doing like even just being boom mic operator or something like that, or reference audio, I was able to listen to dialogue, listen to the story. So I was there and that helped me learn to write. So I think that in school like that, you can pick up those little experiences that maybe when you're on your own, you may not have. Yeah, you're going to get pushed in ways that, you normally wouldn't choose for yourself and getting out of your comfort zone is the thing everybody should embrace no matter what, you know, maybe you would never kind of make a film with those three people over there, but 
boy, are you glad you did after because either you were right and you should have never made a film with those three people <laughs> or wow, at least there was that one cool experience that you'll always carry with you, you know, carry with you going forward. And like you said, as a writer, hearing actors perform dialogue, he, like hearing the beats and the pause and how they're choosing to weave their performance across the scene, just because you're listening to the audio. That's a, that's a cool thing to bring into it, right? Like I, you know, I primarily write, direct and edit, but editing and writing are very similar because basically you're telling the story again, but with the footage. And where do you need to add the pauses to kind of get your vision? Where do you need to let it just play out in one long take? Um, so I, I definitely think you, you need to understand two or three aspects of filmmaking in order to make it. I don't think anybody uh, can survive nowadays just knowing one thing. You at least have to know how all this other stuff happens and have some experience with it. And then you can specialize. But the more that you can know about all the other parts, the better. As far as finding what you wanted to cover, like your love of Jim Henson, Muppets, uh, of course, um, He-Man, Grayskull, where did that just come from just growing up with the toys or was it something that developed later on? Yeah, that's, that's just me, man. I love cartoons. I love toys. I love video games. I always have and I probably always will. <laughs> so why not if I have to spend you know, three to five years making a project, maybe less, have it not have it be about something you love. It, it's got to be about something that you love to motivate you to get up early, to stay up mm -hmm. late, to put in the long days, uh, to convince other people to be a part of it, to convince other people to help you finance it. You've got to speak about this stuff from a, from a place of passion. Uh, and it's, it's just a remarkable tool when you can sit there and talk about why He-Man matters to you and why it matters to the world. And then somebody who has no connection with the, the subject matter, the toys or the movies or the cartoons, all of a sudden says, yeah, I get it. This is something I want to be a part of. Again, that shared experience. Then they're on board and you can't fake that. It's really hard to get excited about something that doesn't really speak to you. And I've tried and I've been a part of projects where it's like, you know what? I don't know anything about this subject and I'll try to come on and I'll try to do it. And it just, you know, grinding gears the whole time because it was just mm -hmm. never organic. So You've got to follow your heart no, no matter what, for better or worse. Like if you know what you love, nobody can tell you that's wrong. And if you truly love it, every day that you're making it will come from that place. So when you sit back and watch it, you're presenting that awesome thing. And because you love it, I guarantee other people will love it as well. And, and that's the thing that they, they say, you know, you know, write what you love, do what you love if you can. And I think that's great because, um, you know, someone like you who likes, the human condition, I think that mixing the two, a product or, or something you like, such as either the Muppets or He-Man or Nintendo, then you mix in with the people behind it, which is one of the reasons like I like writing about people and interviewing people because you, you learn about their background and learn about them. What was it about the human condition that you like to get out of your films, whether you're talking about video games or toys? Well, it's the unknown, right? Um, we all love these things and they bring us together and they create these sub communities so that we have that shared language. Like I, you know, say up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start. And all the Contra fans are going to go, oh my God, yes. And now we're connected. But then, you know, what if I say, you remember when your little brother would steal all your guys on you? It's like, yes, I remember that. You know, so like it, it, you start weaving it in together and then it's like, but did you remember when, you know, mom lost her job and we had to sell the NES mm -hmm. what did that mean to you you know and then you start getting deeper and deeper I mean 
my my mo for the longest time has been taking these big pop culture subjects subjects and topics that we that we all know and breathe and can appreciate on, on different levels even if it's at a arm's length distance but it, it's it's why do they matter to us and how do they connect us and what is our experience with this in that reverberation on how it conditions who we are and why do we keep going back to it that's that's the thing right so the subject matter almost doesn't matter like the broad nintendo he-man muppets that that's cool because that's the, that's the door the door that opens that's how we start talking about stuff and getting to know each other but it's who are we beneath the the surface of that and how do we use that broad vehicle to talk about who we are and what we're going through yeah i think that's one thing that's great about documentaries because i think sometimes people watch it two different ways some people are just trying to learn the history of something. So if you're talking about Nintendo, people are focused on, oh, well, I didn't know that Nintendo did this in this year, or I didn't realize that this didn't get released. But then someone else may say, wow, it's really interesting that the reason why this person did X was because something happened in their life. When yeah. you're working a, a documentary, what is your overall like vision or what do you see that you want to tell people because I mean you have all those sides that are going to come together so for you is it um, more about telling the story of the person or is it telling the story about the product or is it a mixture of both it's a little bit of a mixture of both but it comes down and I was reminded of this quote uh, I think two days ago Jordan who I mentioned earlier my collaborator he said you know there's this great Maya Angelou quote where I'm paraphrasing because I don't want to say I'm quoting and butcher, butcher it. She said, it doesn't matter the work that we do. Nobody's going to remember the work that we do, but they're going to remember how we made them feel. Mm. And it's that lasting impression that the way they felt from the experience of our work that matters the most. So when I'm making a documentary, I'm focusing on that feeling a hundred percent of the time. How is someone going to feel about this? when it's part of the episode or part of the feature length film or part of the series, or how is this episode going to fit into the larger uh, component or how are people going to feel about this camera move or this angle or the sound design? How is that going to add or take away or shape the feeling? That's always important. When I go into a film, it's how am I leaving the audience at the end of it? I want them on the edge of their seat every time. And I either want them to be a moment away from jumping up with their arms in the air out of excitement because the thing happened that everybody hoped, or I want them completely destroyed and in tears. Hmm. And sometimes if you're really lucky, you can give them both. And that's the kind of resonance that is so hard to achieve. But if you can get either like any of those three possibilities, then that's the best. That's the best every single time because you've hooked them to the end and now you've delivered a definite ending that's either overwhelming sadness or like the ultimate success given whatever they're seeing, which is why most of my films, I don't like to do just like a historical perspective on stuff. Uh, as a documentary filmmaker, frankly, there are books out there. You know, right. if people want to read, heck, even if they want to be lazy and look at Wikipedia, they're going to get the gist of the history on whatever the brand sure they're not going to get it in the words of the creators and i think all that stuff is important but i really like to look at pop culture subjects focus on why that matters now and usually look at a personal story that's relevant to that bigger thing that happened whenever and watch it unfold now which again makes that 
older thing still relevant today or more relevant than people may think it is. And as far as when you talked about earlier pre presenting something, because that's the hardest part, you know, you can be in love with something and put your heart into it, but then you come to a point where you have to show it to everyone else. Can you just talk about like that feeling? Cause I think a lot of people worry, especially the way how people can be on the internet. I know you block that out cause it's your craft. It's what you care about. But can you talk about that? And also that next step when you go from, Hey, I'm just going to put this out on the internet. And then you have, you know, Amazon, Netflix, uh, theater releases, the difference between that next step up. Yeah. I mean, uh, getting to the point where you're done is hard because you hopefully will show it to a bunch of people before you're done and say, you want to let strangers watch it. And with my, with my wife, I will look at something and I'll edit down here in my office. I'll be like, okay, this is cool. And then I, you know, I'll, I'll upload it to a private Vimeo link and I'll access it through the Apple TV in the bedroom. When the kids go to sleep, I'm like, Hey honey, I know you hear me talking about action figures forever and you're sick of it. I just want to see what you think about this because I'm starting to feel good about it. And I'll put it on, whether it's an episode, a trailer or a scene. And she'll be like, oh, it's good. I, I really like what's going on here. But when I watch it with her, it's a completely different experience emotionally for me than when I watch it by myself. And I, instantly I can tell all the problems with it. And she doesn't have to say anything. She can just sit there and we can sit beside each other in chairs on the edge of the bed, watching in complete silence. She could react. She could smile. She could laugh, like all positive stuff. And I can instantly look at that stuff completely different. I don't know if it's because it's on a different TV. I don't know if it's because it's on a TV now. I don't know if it's because she's beside me. But that stuff has happened my entire life. The second I try to show somebody and I watch that, watch it with them as a shared experience, it's just different that's the first thing that's hard to do. And then that's where you get like multiple iterations and you go back and it's the fine tuning. The last 5% of filmmaking is the longest when it comes to delivery um, and putting it out there. That's an easy thing for me because I've got to the point because of all those iterations of showing my wife or showing Jordan or showing somebody else where I love what I have made, uh, whether it's because of the circumstances or not, I love what I have done. And it's not going to ever matter what anybody else thinks. You know, most of the time it's my money that I put on the line. So I don't owe anybody anything. Uh, so I've got to own it up to, to myself. You know, if I can't hold myself accountable, then it doesn't matter. Uh, that's it. I grew up in an age where YouTube wasn't really a thing. I came out of uh, college and university in like 2006 and so putting films on YouTube was sort of a thing, but it wasn't really a thing. Uh, Netflix was still doing DVDs. Blockbuster was still around. It was a different time. So I never lived in the world where I could finish a film and thought that I would just put it on YouTube. So I always kind of had to learn the business of distribution. And if I'm going to put years and years of work into this and thousands of dollars into it, then I don't want it to sit on a shelf. And I certainly don't want to, pardon the language but piss it away on youtube because there's more value than that unless i'm going to put a ton of marketing into it and i want to give it away for free if that's the design if that is your end goal that you just want people to look at it youtube is a great platform for that because it's easy to access and everybody knows it if you want to be a filmmaker then you got to learn show business and that's one word show business <laughs> um 
it's a business. You got to make money. You got to learn how to sell it. You got to get it to the right people that want to buy it and in turn become partners and in turn sell it to other people. And then when their window of opportunity on it ends, the license term, then you get it back and you find more partners or you re-up with them. Um, it's a process. I'm still learning. I'm still making mistakes on every level of filmmaking, thankfully, because now I'm learning from them, making better choices as a result. And as far as part of the uh, raising money part, um, you know, I first learned about you through uh, Kickstarter. And even that in, in itself is, is learning because first mm. you have to learn that platform. You have to learn the kind of people because it's a, it's a different kind of investor instead of maybe going the route of just your regular film production. And it's also putting together enough material, uh, advertising, selling yourself to people who go to Kickstarter. Can you just briefly tell us about, you know, that experience working with that platform? Yeah, Kickstarter has been great. It has definitely helped define and shape my career. I can't imagine what my career would be like if it wasn't for social media and, and Kickstarter by extension, because it is essentially a social media platform, but with a driven uh, purchase point opportunity. Uh, Kickstarter uh, allows you to raise a little bit of money from a lot of people, but you've got to convince a lot of people you don't know and you don't get to talk to them in person. You don't get to really call them on the phone. You get to put all your stuff up on the wall and then you have to back away and that hope that whatever you put there convinces people that it's good enough. Now, when I first started doing Kickstarter, it was 2013 and I could sit on a couch or a chair like I am today and I could tell you the great idea for the film that I want to make and why it's awesome and why you should take a chance. And that's that. And then we'll go off, we'll make the film. And then when I'm done, I'll send you your copy. That's what I did for Nintendo Quest, the first campaign. Now, because a lot of big companies are on Kickstarter, they use it more as a six month max pre-order window for an exclusive fan edition. So if it's a video game, a board game, even movies, we'll basically go to Kickstarter for maybe you know 10 to 20 grand or 10% or 20% of, of a budget tops at the last kind of mile just to get fans something in their hands that they won't be able to get later. But they're going to deliver in six months because people on Kickstarter are sick of waiting three to five years for a project yeah. that may have a lot of problems. So they want it now, instantaneously. Uh, and that's tough. And the ironic part about all of this, I am launching another Kickstarter campaign on April 6th for a very different kind of campaign, but it is for a documentary film. We're going to have a very low goal. I think we're looking for like 10K it is the first iteration of what the documentary will look like. And if we raise more money, then that's going to change how the documentary will look. And if we raise more, it'll be kind of, you know, a full-blown thing. So we're letting fans decide uh, what version that they want. But it's going to be me sitting on a couch, maybe a little bit of footage, but it's not going to be the full-on trailer that you would expect to see when you go to the movies, which is the typical thing on Kickstarter nowadays. You go to Kickstarter and you hear about a new movie, it's like the, the polished studio trailer. You're like, yes, I'm in, and I'm in because I want the four disc Blu-ray special edition. So I'm actually going to buck the trend and try to go back to the way it was, uh, but make the goal so much lower that success should be inevitable, but the success will dictate the final form. Because I think people are that are trying to create stuff now on Kickstarter that don't have the resources of a big company, um, that end goal is really hard to achieve early on. So unless you scale either 
where you approach Kickstarter in the process, instead of doing it at the beginning, you approach it at the end. If you can't do that, then you've got to scale that end product. So that's what we're doing this time around in order to give people an opportunity. What is the differences or challenges between your documentary movies like Nintendo Quest and Great Power Grayskull and then doing more of the series type documentaries like video game box, uh, box art and action figure adventure? Uh, there isn't that much difference between them. Uh, even the runtime isn't really a thing. I love making series, to be honest. Um, I wanted to make Nintendo Quest a series when I was editing it. And the team said, no, we should keep this as a feature length film. And I said, okay, let's not take our eye off the prize and get excited with the footage. And then uh, we shot the Power Tour, which was our follow-up pseudo sequel to Nintendo Quest in which Jay and myself tour the finished film theatrically around North America. And him and I have a competition to collect games along the way with every stop in the city, but we don't know what games are on each other's list. So kind of like we're racing to check off our list before the other person does. And we did that as a series. So every city is a different episode and that gave us nine episodes. And then a distributor asked if I could cut the film into four episodes so that they could show the whole thing as 13. And I thought, wow, that gut instinct I had about Nintendo quest being like 90 minutes. So basically 22 and a half minute episodes each was what I should have done. Although we wouldn't have been able to screen it theatrically as, as kind of episodes, because it just doesn't really work like that. Um, but a, a series, man, you could do so much more. Box art was supposed to be a feature length film. And then we got like 150 illustrators on board. And I thought, how are we going to give all of these people, if I can afford to see them all, uh, with traveling and whatnot how are we going to give them screen time in a 90 minute film even if it's 120 minutes how are we going to get screen time for all these people and tell the story and show in and connect the dots and everything else you can and the purpose of that series specifically was to shine a light on those illustrators who created those iconic video game covers and so we're going to shine a light on them for two seconds or a sentence and a half each that doesn't make sense so we said stop we have to rethink our entire premise Let's do it as a series. Let's do it as six episodes, which is what we first said. And then we had more content left over. So we made it eight episodes, but then we'll basically do profiles of people so that we can spend half an episode uh, with an illustrator and the other half with an illustrator, and then hit some other points that connect the whole culture of a video game illustration together. So series sometimes is, is a rethinking of things for a Nintendo quest. It could have been a series or a feature. It was a little bit more, okay, well, I'll just chop this up for you. Action figure adventure was designed as a series first hmm. um, to do 10 episodes. And it was awesome. Ironically, one of my deliverables for action figure adventure to our distributor in Canada, Jinx Esports TV slash super channel, they wanted a feature length version so that they could show it like a two hour block um, to fill up a, a time slot. I said, well, okay, sure. I, I was able to cut Nintendo quest into four episodes. Surely I can condense 10 episodes into two hours. Well, that was not quite as easy to go back the other way because I had fallen in love with how things played out and the different beats and whatnot. It's done. It's been delivered. But I, it's certainly not my favorite flavor of the story. Some stuff works a little bit better being condensed. But overall, it's, uh, it's definitely a miss. So I think series gives you the opportunity to go a little bit more in depth, both on the character side with the, the personal stories, but also the subject matter. An action figure adventure is a perfect example of that because there's so much to talk about in the world of toys 
uh, and to look at the, the history and what makes our, our main subject, Jay, tick. So I have to ask about stories because I know with talking to so many people, interviewing so many people, you must have had some some funny, interesting adventures. Can you just give us maybe a few of your top uh, stories about just filming all these different things that you've done and talking to all these different people? If only we could afford to have a documentary about making the documentary, <laughs> because it would be fun. Now, whether the, you know anybody else would think it's interesting or not, you know, it would be a cool keepsake. And I think that's part of the reason I like to make these films that are on the fly, on the move, because in a way they are capturing the events that they unfold and the audiences along for the ride. Uh, you know, Nintendo Quest, there's tons. There's tons because we were just driving nonstop, like 13 hour days, shoot for two hours, get in the car, drive another four hours kind of kind of stuff. We, we got to a hotel at one point and Jordan, who was driving, got off the elevator and the hotel science is, you know, rooms one to 10 this way and 11 to 20 this way. And he looked at it and he couldn't read it. Oh, man. Like yeah. he couldn't read it. That's how tired we were. Coincidentally, or ironically, or interestingly, the next day we got in the, the car and we were driving and we ran out of gas because the fuel tank, it, it didn't occur to him the day before for us to, to fill up uh, the van. So I just, as it was sputtering, he's like, what's going on? I'm losing power. And then, and then like he did like a double, double focus check and we all leaned over like, Oh my God, we're out of gas. Oh. There's a gas station, like right there, like, like, two blocks away off the highway. The, the off ramp was right there. We were able to get over. And as we were coming off, the van went dead. We jumped out at a, at a slow speed and we pushed the van to the gas station. Probably cost us like 10 minutes of time. But stuff like that happens all the time. Nintendo Quest again, we were asked to go to somebody's house who thought they had a ton of great games. Um, and we said, sure, yeah, let's see what you got. And uh, we went in there and there was not so great games and they were not quite happy that we didn't like, uh, we didn't want to buy anything that Jay was like, no, I've got like kind of all of these. And they wanted like an, an appraisal and Jay's like, okay, well, that's probably 10 bucks. That's probably 20 bucks. And they're like, what about this one? This one is worth thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. First of all, I can't believe you don't have it. Second of all, you're going to tell me this is like thousands of dollars, right? And Jay's like, no, it's like 20 bucks. It's like the Legend of Zelda gold card. And they oh. thought, no, this is that they thought it was like NWC, the gold card edition. It's like, sorry. And like one guy like left the room and like slammed the door. And like, these are people we don't know. In the South, we're Canadians. <laughs> and we don't know if we're going to see the light of day again. So it got uncomfortable really fast. So we did everything we could to diffuse the situation, collect our stuff and hit the road. Um. Action figure adventure. There's an episode where we drove, you know, 13 hours to North Carolina. Again, no sleep, nothing, just kind of laughing in the car all the way and, and going through the paces, shooting for six hours once we got there into the wee hours in the morning. Got four hours, four hours of sleep back in the car, 13 hours back the other way, back to Canada. You know, it felt like a week, but it was only like a day and a half. It's crazy, it, but it's fun, man. And Power Grayskull, same thing, you know. There was four of us. I was living in Vegas at the time. And so everybody flew into Vegas. We drove from Vegas to LA. And then we were like living in Beverly Hills at a hotel for like three weeks at a time for I think three different stints. So just being in, you know, the LA area for a long time, meeting different people, going to different places, just crazy, crazy stuff, but fun. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things about filmmaking is that you you really have to like it. I mean, you, you hear about, um, especially people who go the, uh, the professional route and their start is like a PA or something, those long hours, 12, 14 hours, it's, it's, it's difficult. And, and if you're a PA starting out, you're not getting paid much. But I've noticed that <clears throat> even when I'm working a job where I'm sitting down in the air conditioned place for eight hours, I never loved it as much as being on set, standing on my feet, back hurting for like 12, 14 hours. You've got to love it. You've got to love it because that's what's going to let you sleep on the floor and tend people to like a, like a hotel room because you can't afford to have other rooms and stuff like that, at least to start out. Like the hardships that would normally irritate most people seem to dissolve because you're on a mission. You know, you're on a mission to get this done, to get this done the right way. And, uh, you know, pain is temporary, film is forever. At least that's what they say. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, I mean, this is a brand new endeavor, I guess. Um, when Nintendo Quest came out, uh, Jay and myself and our good friend, Glenn Stanway, who's a video game producer and was producing the film and series with us, started a podcast called GamerCast. And that ran for just over 100 episodes, basically to the point where we found ourselves repeating topics in our answers but it was great promotion for Nintendo Quest to have us constantly on the air all the time, uh, doing different live events and recording gamer casts in different cities as different Nintendo Quest things came along. So when Action Figure Adventure wrapped up, instead of just like saying, hey, it's on TV, go check it out. We thought, man, it would be really cool just to start up a podcast again. And it was Jay who said, you know, we need to do this. And he'd been begging me and begging me to like make the time because it'll be so much fun when we do. And I said, Jay, I'm trying to get several projects going we're in a pandemic, like every minute counts, like working at home and family, as you'll hear my junior executives above me, isn't always easy. So I don't have a ton of time, but we said, you know what? We owe it to the series for the effort that we put into it to promote it as best as we can. So why not just keep talking toys? And frankly, it's, you know, he's the, the star of the show, the series, and I'm behind the scenes for 90% of it. So we never really got a chance to talk toys was making the movie so we thought you know what well, we should do the gamer cast thing again so we started the jay and rob toy show and we go live every monday night at 8 30 p.m eastern we we broadcast to my personal facebook page our action figure adventure page my writer director page on facebook uh we push it to twitch uh twitch.tv slash rob mczob we push it to my youtube channel uh and it's probably a few other places that we're going to do you know 1080p stream we bring guests on and we talk toys every week for at least an hour sometimes an hour and a half we've had people that have sculpted some of the coolest toy lines ever people that have worked with all the big brands that you ever know that, uh, that you ever know of all the ma major collectors out there that have been collecting for decades and decades that have you know collections that are worth you know millions of dollars probably um it's just fun and we don't take it too seriously we always keep it light but we also respect the subject matter it's it's a lot of fun and you know if you love toys and you love to see two friends who can have the shorthanded conversation and push each other's buttons uh to see who can one-up each other and laden every comment with sarcasm <laughs> then this is definitely the show for you how has it been um, adjusting in, in the time of COVID? Because, you know, I, I know a lot of people who either just got out of school or just getting started and they felt like their careers have been put on hold for a year or more. 
um, some have been able to adjust and do other things, but some, they were very specialized. So they felt left behind. As far as you professionally, how have you been able to balance keeping your projects going forward, adding in new things that maybe you didn't think you'd do, but because of COVID you had to, and just adjusting to that? And do you feel like things have been set back because of COVID? It's been a massive adjustment. And you know what? That's okay. Um, whether, you know, I don't know what your religious beliefs are, anybody that listening out there, but you know, they have a saying, you know, uh, tell God your plans and watch him laugh at the <laughs> plans you make, because no matter what you plan and how desperate those plans are, there's always a chance they can go to hell. Um, and this is just one of those things, you know, you can't keep strangling the pandemic that you have no control of because you thought you would be somewhere else or doing something else. You have to make peace with it. I think that is step one. Um, the pandemic has been a blessing in some senses because uh, I was supposed to be shooting more for action figure adventure and we couldn't, we stopped. And I was like, you know what? Then we're going right into post. So I was busy until, until at least the end of the summer end of September, maybe from March to September almost full-time doing a post on action figure adventure uh, and thinking back that I was supposed to film more. It's like, I'm probably glad where I, where I stopped where I did. And I don't think it, it hurt the series to exclude those things uh, because it turned out really well. So that was an adjustment, letting go of the expectations and just saying, Hey, this is the new reality. What can I do with the skills that I have? I've had to develop different shows. The Jay and Rob toy show is now being considered for broadcast TV because our production partners at different parts of the world and our broadcast affiliates, they really like what we're doing. So I had to learn live streaming. Um, I am using professional studio gear right now to have a Zoom conversation with you, which looks better than the standard webcam. Yeah. Uh, and this, this goes into a box and, you know, Jay has a camera at his place and I get his feed directly and it's 4K signals that I can edit and, edit and put together. And Talk shows have been around for a very long time. So how do we do a talk show that's more interesting? Well, that's our secret sauce. And we've got a couple of fun things in the works. That is cool toy talk and pop culture banter with a bunch of other ingredients. So we would have never thought about stuff like that. Had we not have been in this situation, we would have just been trying to, you know, raise hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do season two or season three, or this other big idea. We've had to get more economic about, creating entertainment uh, and focus on content because content is king, which is why documentary is great. You can have handheld shakiness, but if you saw who shot Kennedy, that footage is great. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be in 8k 3d um, for it to be good. Uh, it's just, it just has to leave that lasting impact, that memorable experience. Right. So we're trying to do that and we've had to, and hopefully when we get out of this, like I said, you know, Canada the vaccines are rolling out very slowly mm. um, we don't think we're going to be safe to travel until probably the end of the year they're saying so we've got like another year of this so what can we do in the meantime and how do we get ready for when they say we can go back to the race but embrace it man like it, it is tough I don't always get an eight-hour day and, and work sometimes I get 12 a lot of the time I get five or six it's tough I've got two kids. You might not have two kids, but is the stress that you're going to put on yourself because things are different worth it? You got to redefine your expectations, your goals and work within that. 
You're a writer. You can write anywhere. Pen and paper, done. Cell phone, done. You can always write. It's great. I, I think of myself as a writer first and foremost, too. So I'm working on books now as well. Oh, and nice. I can turn those books into audio books. They can be kids books. I got to team up with an illustrator. And I found a fantastic uh, lady in, in Western Canada who does amazing art. And so we're going to try to partner on something. And that's something we can do without having to travel all over the place, which is, you know, the documentaries I'm known for. Maybe this is a signal that I got to do different types of films or different types of creative projects. As long as I'm a storyteller, like we said at the beginning, then I'm doing what I love. It's the process. It's, it's the sharing. And it's the telling of the story. Well, then to that point, is there anything else you can tell us about what's coming up? As far as yeah, there's, there's so much. Yeah, there's so much out there, right? I mean, Power of Grayskull is on Netflix. If you want to hear the history of a billion dollar brand, check out that you'll get an awesome kind of inside look on how action figures were made and why the 80s were so special uh, with a look at specifically He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Uh, we just released a concert film a couple months ago on Kitty, a heavy metal act from my hometown. Um, gold selling uh, artists, amazing. And they just did this incredible reunion show that's 20 years in the making featuring multiple lineups so they'll play like five songs and then change members and then change members again awesome experience easily one of my top top five concerts i've ever been to and shot at the same time uh video game box art is now finally released worldwide if you want to know who the people are that are responsible for those iconic gaming covers as you used to walk down the aisles of the toys rest you only had the image on the front cover to judge if that game was good you get to hear about these people. And a lot of those people, you know, did movie posters, did toy packaging, and went on to do some really cool stuff as well. Um, RobMcZob.com is my website. Go to RobMcZob.com. Uh, you'll see a few blog posts out there, but you'll see a links to all my work. Go check it out. If you like experiences and you like to go along for the ride, a journey, you are going to be in, in for a treat. I, I promise you that. You will not come out of any of my films or experiences saying, oh, I don't know how to feel about that. You'll always be on the edge of your seat going, yeah, or like move to tears. That's what I have to do. If I don't do that, something went wrong. Well, and we'll definitely put all those links, uh, especially on cool. obsoletegamer.com so that people can see it. Because, I mean, it's a lot of cool stuff. And I love reading uh, and also watching about things that I grew up with. So I think that your work has been fantastic and I look forward to seeing more. But thank you very much for coming on our show today and talking with us. If there's a theme one should find within all of these interesting people, it is that they found something they love and stuck with it. While there are many pitfalls on the road to contentment, having good friends, a welcoming community, and the will to persevere after setbacks will get you to your goal. Doing what you know starts with knowing what you love and then doing it, and not letting anyone, including yourself, talk you out of it. Success is subjective, but if you love what you do and continue working at it, then the rewards and the feeling of fulfillment will never subside. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.